morning. My name is Scott Shuffield, and it is an honor and a privilege and quite sobering to open God's Word to you this morning. And fortunately, I have had family and friends praying for me for the past several weeks about this. And if you are one of those people, thank you very much. And if there is anything beneficial that comes out of this, we can point back to that myriad of people standing behind me that have been praying. As you can see this morning, what we're talking about is being grateful even when life stinks. And the introduction that I have for you this morning is going to be um, one that I include you in as well. So not only do you have to pay attention, but you're going to have to participate as well. So I've got a series of questions up here. The first one, is it good, maybe even important, to memorize Bible verses? If you agree with that, would you raise your hand? Okay, uh, how many of you raised your hand because you knew that the person next to you was going to be looking and might think less of you if you didn't raise your hand? All right, second question. How many of you think that sometimes memorizing verses can be difficult? Raise your hand. Okay, now how many of you didn't raise your hand because you were trying to impress the person next to you? All right, third question. Now, realizing the importance of the words in the verse, how many of you think that sometimes it's easier to memorize the words than to actually live out the message in that verse? That is a lot different, isn't it? And over the past uh, couple of weeks, I've been rememorizing a verse. This is from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. And I'm just going to try to prove my point here. I'm going to ask my friend Carol here to make sure that I'm doing this right. Uh, the verse says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Pretty close? Okay. Somebody asked me in the first service if we were done when I said that. The answer is no then, it's no now as well. Those are pretty easy words to memorize. Three verses, the first verse had two words, the second verse had two words, and even the third verse didn't have that many words, so it wasn't that difficult to memorize. But living it out, that's completely different, isn't it? Now, if I were God, I know, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Let me rephrase that. If I were the one who was writing this verse down, this is how I might have done it. Don't forget to rejoice when the good times roll. And don't forget to pray each day, or at least most days. And thank God when he blesses you, because Jesus likes it when we mostly remember and pray and thank him. Now that one, that's not so hard to live out, is it? But when you look at the way that God wrote it, to rejoice always, and to pray continually, and to give thanks in all circumstances. That's a little bit more difficult, isn't it? When I'm thinking about those verses and trying to live them out, I think about some things that could happen in our lives. Like, you know, I'm supposed to do these things, rejoice always. Well, what about when the guy behind me is driving like a jerk? Or, or what about if you're... Your boss or your teacher is very demanding. Or what if your teenager is acting like a teenager? 
Or teenagers, what if your parent is acting like the fun police? Or what if your doctor says the C word? Or your spouse says the D word? Those are difficult times to really live this out. This reminded me of a story that I'd read uh, for the first time many years ago and have read several times since and watched the movie and uh, listened to dramatic productions of it. It's the story of Corey Ten Boom and her family back in the days of Nazi-occupied Holland. And if you remember back to those times, this was against the law for anybody to harbor Jews and to help them escape from being sent to the concentration camps. And even though the Ten Boon family were not Jewish, they decided that they were going to help God's chosen people. And so they hid them in their home until they were caught, and they themselves were sentenced to a concentration camp. And I just want to read to you a little bit about this. This is when they were on their way to uh, the second concentration camp that they were headed to. Uh, This was Ravensbrück, the notorious concentration camp. And they are headed to their new barracks. This is a conversation between Corrie Ten Boon, who tells the story, and her older sister, Betsy. Corrie says, Fleas! Betsy, the place is swarming with them. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us. Show us how. It was stated so matter-of-factly that it took me a second to realize my sister was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer before we asked, as he always does. In the Bible this morning, where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the long, dim aisle to make sure that no guard was in sight, and then I drew the Bible from its secret pouch underneath my dress. It was in First Thessalonians, I said. Here it is. Comfort the frightened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. It seemed like it was written expressively for a place like Ravensbrook. Go on, said Betsy. That wasn't all. Oh, yes, uh, to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do, and we can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her, and then around me at the dark, foul-aired room, Such as, I said, such as being here together. I bit my lip, oh yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all the women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy, thank you for the crowding here. Since we're packed so close, that will mean more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jam-crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. That's quite a prayer, isn't it? Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas and for... The fleas? This was too much. 
Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are a part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between piers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. Now who do you identify with? With Betsy, who almost with superhuman power seemed to be able to be grateful in all circumstances, or Corey, who seemed to be at the end of a rope. I know that if I'm honest, I probably identify more with Corey. You know, we've all gone through difficult circumstances, and we've read these verses in 1 Thessalonians 5:16 through 18. We know that we're supposed to rejoice always. We know that we're supposed to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances. But when things start going wrong in my life, what I start to think is, well, maybe he didn't mean these circumstances. These circumstances, uh, Paul didn't know about these when he wrote that letter to the church in Thessalonia. So what is it that he's asking us to learn here? And as I began to look at the Bible for answers and looked for some specific examples of people that did this, I think it makes it easier to look at people who have done this. I found the example of Daniel. You remember Daniel? He's captured as a teenager, as a prisoner of war, and sent to a foreign place to live. New place, new things to learn, new language to learn. And he honors God in all he does and says, and he's raised to a level in the government that is second only to the king. And everybody was so jealous of him that they persuaded the king to put into a law that you could only pray to the king, not to anybody else. And if you did, it was punishable by death and not some humane way of death, if there is such a thing, but it was death by being torn to pieces by lions. So what does Daniel do? What he always did. He goes into his room, and he opens the window, and he kneels in front of it and starts praying out loud to his God. I also discovered Jesus standing in front of the people that he had just preached to, We often refer to this as the feeding of the 5,000. But if you look closely at it, it says that there were 5,000 men. If you throw in the women and the children as well, you may be looking at 20,000 people that had been there that are now looking to be fed. So Jesus sends out his disciples into the crowd looking for food. And what do they come back with? Two little fish and five loaves of bread. And this is not the loaf of bread like you buy at the grocery store. These are probably about the size of a bagel. And so what does Jesus do? He takes them and he thanks his God for how he's going to feed 20,000 people with this little bit of food that probably wasn't even enough for two. Then I also discovered Job. He hears in one morning that all of his children have been killed in some freak accident. And what does he say? Let me read this to you. Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
amazing, isn't it? Most difficult time of his life, most painful time of his life, and he says, I'm going to praise God. Let me share with you one more example. This is from more modern times. It was just a little bit over 100 years ago. There was a missionary couple in Sweden named David and Svea Flood, and they, along with another couple, Joel and Bertha Erickson, were commissioned by their church to go to the Congo in Africa. And while they were on their way there, macheting their way through this place that had never seen white people before, obviously no missionaries had been there before, and in their first year they didn't see a single convert. The village was resistant to the gospel because they were afraid of offending their tribal gods. But that did not keep the wife, Svea, from sharing the gospel with a little boy who came to her back door each day to sell her eggs. Soon after they arrived, Svea became pregnant and, along with that, also contracted malaria and was bedridden for the entire term. On April 13, 1923, Svea died 17 days after she gave birth to a little girl that they named Ina. So this grief-stricken man, David, made a casket and buried his 27-year-old wife on the hillside overlooking their village. Grief gave way to bitterness, and he gave his daughter to the other missionary couple and asked them to raise her, and he went back to Sweden and tried over the next 50 years to drown his sorrows in alcohol. The Ericsons raised Ina until she was a toddler, and then both of them died within three days of each other when they were poisoned by the very people they had come to tell the good news to. And so this little girl, a toddler now, is given to another missionary couple from America, Arthur and Anna Berg. And they renamed the daughter because the mother's name was Anna and the daughter's name would have been Ina, so they renamed her Aggie. And after spending a few more years there, they went back to the United States where they uh, pastored some churches. Aggie grew up, and after she graduated from college, she went to a Bible college, and she met and married her husband, Dewey Hurst, and they were, he was a pastor of several churches in America and then became the president of Northwest Bible College, where they stayed for a number of years. On their 25th anniversary at that college, the faculty gave them a gift, which was a trip to Sweden. And so Aggie decided that she was going to try to find her father, who had abandoned her 50 years before for five days, there was no hope. They didn't find her or find him. But on the fifth day, they received a clue that led them to a ramshackled third-story apartment building where they found him. And he was on his deathbed with a failing liver. The last words that David Flood ever expected to hear were, Papa, it's Ina. And the first words out of his mouth were filled with remorse. He said, I never meant to give you away. And so these two embraced, and a 50-year curse of bitterness was broken as a daughter and her father were reunited. But even more importantly, a man 
was reunited for eternity with his heavenly father. The next day, Aggie returned to the United States, but while she was in transit, her father died, and she found that out when she landed. Now that sounds like a a good story with a nice little ending, but it doesn't explain all those 50 years in between, does it? I want to tell you the rest of that story. About five years after that, Dewey and Aggie were at a conference in London, England, with about 10,000 other delegates at Royal Prince Albert Hall. And on the opening night, a man named Ruhagita Nadagaro, who was the superintendent of the Pentecostal church in Zaire, stood up to speak through an interpreter. What caught Aggie's attention was the fact that this man had been born somewhere in the vicinity of where she had been born. And so afterwards, she went up and talked to him through an interpreter and said, do you know about this village where I grew up? And he said, that's where I lived as a young boy. And uh, she said, well, did you know of some missionaries by the last name of Flood? And he said, every day I would go to Svea Flood's back door to sell her eggs, and she would tell me about Jesus. He said, I don't know if she had a single convert in all of Africa besides me. And then he said, shortly after I accepted Christ, Svea died and her husband left. They had a little baby girl named Ina, and I've always wondered what happened to her. And so she told Ruhigita who she, you know, what her original name was, and they embraced like siblings that had been separated at birth. Then Ruhigita said, just a few months ago, I placed flowers on your mother's grave. On behalf of the hundreds of churches and hundreds of thousands of believers in Zaire, thank you for letting your mother die so that many of us could live. See, for 55 years, all those years in between, there didn't seem like there was any good reason for her mother to die. But that's because we don't know the whole story. We only see the part that we happen to be living in at the moment. We have to trust him, even though what we experience is tragedy. We have to believe that he's still working his will. You remember what Job said. God gave him the strength to say that even though the Lord has taken away what he gave, I will praise him still. But the question remains, why? Why would God have us go through these things? Why would God make such crazy demands on us when we're going through the most difficult times of our lives? I believe the answer is that there are benefits and blessings that God gives to those who will take him at his word and will learn the discipline of giving thanks in all circumstances. So let's go through some of those benefits and blessings. The first one is that giving thanks to God prepares the way for him to reveal his plan for us. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 50, we're going to read just a couple of verses from there. Psalm chapter 50, and I'll start at verse 14. Psalm 50, verse 14. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. 
I will deliver you and you will honor me. Then down to verse 23. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me and he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. You see that? The person who sacrificed thanks offerings honors God and prepares the way so that God can show the way of salvation to people. I think of uh, what happens here on a Sunday morning as an example. There are people preparing the way for us to hear God's message. Long before any of us arrived, there were a group of people that were opening up Sunday school rooms and preparing those for classes. There were technicians here doing sound checks and musicians and uh, singers who were getting ready, preparing themselves. And maybe most importantly, there were people in the kitchen preparing a gallon upon gallon of coffee so that you would be ready for this morning. Now, if none of those things had happened, nobody had practiced, nobody had warmed up, the sound wasn't ready for you, wouldn't it be more difficult to hear the way of salvation? In the same way, that's how God uses the circumstances of our life to prepare us so that the way of salvation can be presented. It's as if God is waiting for us to say in those difficult circumstances, God, I know that all I have is yours, and it comes from you. I trust that just as your word says it, you are good. I choose to trust you and to thank you. I've learned that in in some difficult times in my own life. I'm sure you have as well. I could share a number of examples from my own life, but that's not really the point. The point is, what have I learned from it? And I think there are two things that I've learned through going through those difficult times. The first is that I believe I've become a more compassionate person. I believe that I'm more caring than I was before. And the second thing I've learned is the power of prayer. Not only of praying myself, but in gathering a group of people who will pray with me. Now, why else does God want us to learn to give thanks in all circumstances? Giving thanks to God ushers in the peace of God to guard our hearts and our minds. I think we're all very familiar with these verses from Philippians chapter 4, perhaps so familiar that sometimes we kind of just read over them, gloss over them. So I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. If you do this, you will experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So the Apostle Paul is writing, get rid of your anxiety and replace it with a lifestyle of prayer. Bring everything to God in prayer, but he doesn't leave it at that, does he? He says to bring everything to God in prayer with thanksgiving. And then he promises something that no amount of money can provide. God's peace that passes all understanding. There's also a third thing that I believe comes from this, and that's giving thanks reminds us that God uses all of our circumstances to make us more like him. 
These verses from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 are very familiar, but let's not forget who wrote these and the circumstances that he went through. The Apostle Paul had been beaten many times to the point of death. As a matter of fact, he was left several times and the job wasn't finished because they thought he already was dead or couldn't survive the beating they had given him. He was imprisoned falsely, hadn't done anything wrong. Many times he was very hungry. He had been shipwrecked. And maybe worst of all, he was abandoned by those who claimed to be his friends. Yet in the middle of all of that, he writes these verses to the church in Rome. You know what, let's read these together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's a great verse, isn't it? He tells us that he's working for our good even when we don't see it. He tells us that there's a purpose. It isn't pointless that we go through difficulty. Sometimes we wonder, well, what is it? Why can't I know what the point of this suffering is? And part of the reason that we don't see it is because we live in time and space, and God does not. He sees the beginning and the end. He knows what's going on. He asks us to trust him. But really, the main point of all of this is written in this second verse, that he will conform us to the image of his Son. I don't know about you, but I find the greatest times of growth in my life have occurred specifically because of the most painful times that I've gone through. I don't grow a whole lot when things are going easy and well. But when I go through difficult times, that's when I'm forced onto, in, onto my knees in prayer before God, and that's when the growth occurs. That's when we become what Paul calls being conformed to the image of his son. What does that mean? It simply means that we are becoming the mirror image of Jesus Christ. And that should be the goal of all of us. And that's what he says God uses these times for. Someday, if this is the way that we live, we'll stand before him and he'll say, you went through some difficult times. You trusted me. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we all hope to hear. So we're walking by faith and not by sight. When sight would say, when maybe somebody says to you, how could God be real? Look at all of the suffering that goes on in the world. That's when faith says, even in this, I believe God is good and that his love endures forever. I'm going to close by returning to the story that I started with from the hiding place. You remember Corey and her sister Betsy were giving thanks even for the fleas in the Nazi concentration camp in Ravensbrück. And you remember Corey was saying, this time I knew my sister was wrong about these fleas. Well, a couple of months later, something happened that proved who was right and who was wrong. Let me read this to you. Corey writes, One evening I got back to the barracks late from wood gathering 
outside the walls. A light snow lay on the ground, and it was hard to find the sticks and twigs, which a small stove was kept going in each room. Betsy was waiting for me, as always, so that we could wait through the food line together, and her eyes were twinkling. You're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, I told her. You know, we never understood why we had so much freedom in the big room, she said, referring to the fact that they had been free to have Bible studies and even sing hymns in the barracks together in the evenings. Well, I found out. That afternoon, she said, there had been confusion in her knitting group about sock sizes they had been uh, forced to make, and they asked the supervisor to come and settle it. But she wouldn't. She would not step through the door, and neither would any of the guards. And you know why? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice. Because of the fleas. That's what she said. That place is crawling with fleas. My mind rushed back to our first hour in this place, and I remember Betsy's bowed head and remembered her thanks to God for the creatures I could see no use for. I hope that what we can learn from this is what Corey and Betsy had come to learn, that when we trust God enough to thank him in all circumstances, he will work in our lives. Even being grateful for something like fleas, or being grateful for being in a place like a concentration camp so that people could come to know Jesus. So when those painful times come in your life, and trust me, they will, I'm not trying to, to predict doom for your life, but we all go through difficult times. My hope is that you will have the proper response. Let's look back at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice, not because of the circumstances you're going through, but in spite of them. Pray continually. Take everything to God in prayer. And don't just do it on your own. Enlist friends and family to pray with you. And then give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We see the fleas, not that the fleas are there for our benefit. We see the death of a spouse or a mother and not the salvation of thousands of people because of that sacrifice.